This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to the June 9th edition of Global Engagement. I'm Patrick Ryan. And I'm Dick Bowers. Today we're going to talk about the top five topics in the news from the past week. And we uh, up front will apologize for a slight delay in getting started here. Uh, we had some technical difficulties, but we're good to go now. So uh, Dick, uh, can you share our list of topics for the week? I see them on the screen there, Pat. So the first topic is uh, global solidarity of the Black Lives Matter movement and talking about the effect that the tragic death of George Floyd had on the world because it's not just the United States phenomenon. Second up is troop reductions in Germany. Kind of a surprise, they hit everybody and including the Germans here. So we'll see what that's all about. And then we've got China propaganda attacks come on strong. And then let's talk about Libya, which has uh, been in the news and there's stuff happening in that country we ought to be aware of. And finally, the uh, Israel West Bank annexation. What does that mean for the United States and what's happening? So, but first let's take our quiz question, which is taken from the Monday morning, what in the world weekly quiz. And if you don't get that in your take on Monday morning, you should, and you can, and just send a little note, ask Pat how to do that. Uh, and the question is, quote, while the job is not done, there is no denying this is a milestone. Thank you, New Zealand, said this prime minister in comments marking the elimination of COVID-19, one of the first nations to achieve this milestone. The question is, who is the prime minister of New Zealand? A, Jacinda Ardern, B, Wyna Cooper, C, Nancy Wake, or D, Francis Hodgkins? And we will go through the news, and then at the end, we'll tell you the answer to that question. Pat? Great. Thanks, Dick. Uh, first up, we're going to talk about the uh, international implications of the Black Lives Matter uh, protests over the killing of uh, George Floyd uh, two weeks and a day ago. And uh, we've seen uh, in the last uh, weekend and a, a couple of days before that, uh, protests erupt uh, literally around the world across uh, mostly uh, Western Europe, but uh, the Middle East, Africa, Australia, and uh, some countries in, in Southeast Asia. And, and those are depicted uh, on, the, on the slide there. Um, I, I think the, uh, the main takeaway uh, from this, Dick, is that uh, the United States, which uh, and you know you you can probably take the lead talking about the diplomatic impact of this, uh, but the United States has uh, championed democracy, human rights, and justice around the world for decades, and now we're being uh, called to account around the world. Uh, you can see uh, demonstrators outside uh, embassies, and in the in the slide you can see some young men outside the Swiss embassy. That's in Tehran. Uh, so uh, countries, including uh, uh, Iran and others, are are now lecturing the United States, and we're going to talk a little bit about Chinese propaganda uh, further down in the uh, the program. But yeah. uh, that that does have major implications for uh, our international uh, efforts abroad. 
Well, you know, Pat, for, for most of my lifetime, we were the shining city on the hill and, and we held up human rights and liberty and freedom and all of these kinds of things. But the reality is that um, America has been a racist, racist nation since its beginning. Uh, we put slavery in our constitution, counted black people as what, three fifths of a person for census purposes. Uh, and although we fought a civil war to end slavery, we've never really come to grips with the racism in the United States. And I sense that this is a, a moment that's changing American history. I don't think this movement is going to go away, and I think there are going to be some fundamental shifts. A lot of people at the local level in the, in the, in the United States are talking about budgetary shifts, uh, in cities, shifting money out of the police budget and into things like taking care of the homeless in a better way and mental health facilities and things of that sort. Um, if we have a problem with a kid who's a truant in school, often we'll send an armed police officer to do something about that. And that just doesn't make a lot of sense. So right. I think you're gonna find that all around the world, uh, this movement is gonna resonate and things will change. It's not going to be the same. Well, the uh, the impact, I think, on, on diplomacy is, is going to be that uh, uh, diplomats are less able to tout uh, uh, the United States as, as you said, the, the shining city on the hill, uh, but rather it looks like uh, the impact of uh, the protest movement here is going to uh, have, an, have a uh, lasting effect on the American image abroad, that uh, it's no longer Foggy Bottom or the White House that will be projecting the values of the United States, but people in the streets. Yeah. Well, you know, the last three years of the Trump administration, there's been some confusion about what those values are. I mean, we, we since the Second World War have been, well, since the First World War, actually, um, we have been involved in the international arena. And now we are doing what's for lack of a better term, is, you know, make America great and we go it alone. We don't need anybody else. Yeah. I, that doesn't work. I mean, we're in this in this world together and we, we do a lot better job when we work on it together. And especially when you look at the response that we've made to the COVID-19 affair. Um, it's, it's not just us, it's everybody. And this is going to have a major effect on how we engage the world uh, and we see what Mr. Trump does. Well, and you mentioned COVID, and that's another uh, aspect of this story that uh, not just on the streets of America, but abroad, even in the face of uh, the pandemic, uh, people are coming out uh, to protest. Uh, so that's that's remarkable in, in the influence of, of the movement. Uh, I don't know if you saw on TV in uh, Bristol, England, they pushed over the uh, statue of a, a slave trader in, into the river, uh, you know, uh, they, they really were, were showing passion for... Uh, well, I think that you're going to find a lot of that in the United States coming, coming down the road. And I think there's going to be a, a major push. I, I, would not, I would not see that uh, things are going to be the same. And in fact, I think there will be a major effort to figure out something on reparations. Uh, how does America make whole what it has done to the, the Black Americans from slavery to today? 
Yeah. And I'm not sure how you do that, but I'm sure we need a, a, a national dialogue on race. Yeah. Uh, just like South Africa had a national dialogue on how do we, how did they overcome apartheid? So well, yeah, you're you're right. We've we've seen uh, uh, the likelihood of a transformation in American foreign policy, where we fit in the world, a transformation on uh, the economy and and the questions after the pandemic of healthcare and and benefits for labor, especially people who depend on uh, their workplace for healthcare and other benefits. Yeah. So I, I think um, this whole pandemic, uh, George Floyd. Um, uh, incident are are going to have, as you as you say, uh, lasting impact on uh, the changing face of America. Well, let's uh, let's move on to our uh, next uh, item, Dick. It's the uh, uh, Trump administration plan to cut troop strength in Germany. And um, uh, I don't know if you have any stories from back in the Cold War <laughs> days in Berlin, but you were you were an American troop in Germany uh, back in the day. Uh, probably when the uh, the troop strength there was was much higher than 34,000 Americans uh, stationed in Germany. Uh, I think what was the, the the high point in the Cold War? 270,000 GIs and airmen uh, uh, based in uh, in Germany it was it was a, a a staggering number of Americans there. Uh, but that was to uh, to forestall the Soviet Union, uh, who occupied East Germany. Um, Occupied yeah, the, probably, the, probably isn't the, the right word, who were stationed the, forward the deployed. Flippant, flippant kind of uh, expression that was often used during the Cold War is in, in referring to U.S. presence in Europe and, and NATO uh, had three purposes. One was to keep the Americans engaged in Europe, so keep the Americans in. Uh, second, keep the Russians out. Don't let the Russians come and take it over militarily or politically or economically. And third was keep the Germans down. Now, the Germans basically were viewed as the bad guys. They started the First World War from a few of some, and they started the Second World War, and that we, we just don't want them to do it again with the Third World War. Germans are very organized and capable people. So those three things were important, and the U.S. troop presence since the end of the Cold War basically has been in the U.S. interest there. We've served, used Germany as a major base to support our activities in the Middle East and Afghanistan. Uh, the Air Force Base in Frankfurt is one of the huge uh, activities that we have there along with hospitals. So guys who get, guys and gals who get injured in the battlefield in the Middle East or in Afghanistan or in Africa will get medevaced into Germany in the first instance before it gets stabilized and then on back to the United States. So the thing that struck me most about this is this is another problem I have with the kind of diplomacy being practiced by the current White House. You don't surprise your allies and enemies by just having them read a tweet. Uh, evidently, this idea of withdrawing U.S. troops was just not coordinated with the Germans. We didn't discuss it with them. And we just said, well, you know, it's our troops. We're going home. Goodbye. Yeah. And you're right. Uh, we we evolved our our missions in Germany. Um, you know, keeping the Germans down might have been important in the uh, the 50s, but late 60s, early 70s, Germany was a uh, a full partner in uh, the defense, the NATO defense of uh, of Western Europe. Uh, they they were uh, circumspect in their deployments elsewhere, but uh, Germany and the rest of our NATO presence in Europe. 
um, as we got increasingly involved in the Middle East and North Africa, uh, as you mentioned, Landstuhl, the, the hospital, and Ramstein, uh, one of the largest uh, air bases in the world, uh, was the, uh, the anchor for U.S. forces uh, in, the, in that half of the planet. So it's it's going to be interesting, uh, you know. As you said, this this was a a tweet surprise to the Germans. Uh, they have not reacted uh, uh, discreetly. They've they've been, you know. I don't think Angela Merkel has said anything on her own, but people close to her have uh, have really uh, reacted poorly to this. Um, it's uh, it's really a blow to NATO and uh, U.S. Presence in the region. You know, we've been beefing up our forces in Poland, which is now a NATO nation, um, but uh, there's still a, a great value in maintaining uh, that presence uh, in Germany. So I think there's going to be some examination of this. I know um, the uh, the Senate is going to take a look at it. Uh, Senator Jack Reed on the uh, Armed Services Committee is uh, pretty concerned about this being uh, pulling the rug out from uh, our relationship with Germany. Well, as well he should. I mean, the part of the part of the problem I have is that, you know, it, everything we do around the world, we should be continually looking at, does this continue to make sense? Just because you did it in the past doesn't mean you'd have to do it in the future. But if you're gonna change something, how you go about doing these things is critical. You wanna end up with a positive relationship building upon what you're doing rather than everybody mad at each other and throwing barbs at each other and being upset. We yeah. have a legitimate need to be engaged in Europe to protect America. And how we do that can be up for discussion, but you don't just decide, oh, well, we'll just bring home one third of the troops we have there. And you know, wh why, why are we doing this? What's gonna be left? What's the option? What's the, what are the uh, things we're trying to achieve? And none of that has come out other than just the idea that, oh, we're gonna withdraw. Yeah. Well, you know, the other day I was reading a section of the National Security Strategy uh, 2017 that, uh, th that the Trump administration released, and, and you, you might wonder why I sit around reading the, the, <laughs> the National Security Strategy. That's it's, it's, uh, the reason I, I don't get into any of the, the novels that you keep sending over. There um, but there was a section in there that, that laid out uh, several points of uh, how we go about setting the strategy and dealing with, uh, with the world. And a couple of those included uh, phrases like uh, uh, ensuring the prestige of the United States is maintained abroad, uh, ensuring our, our interests and the alliances are maintained. So, uh, you know, we have this, uh, this grand strategy and, and when the, the Trump administration came out with it, there, there were a lot of critics but it looks like every time we make one of these uh, steps, it's not consistent with any grand strategy. I agree. And it's, you know, it, it boggles my mind because it, it doesn't have to be this way. But it goes back to the cardinal principle of leadership. You know, what, what are you going to do? How do you get the right plan in place? And then how do you mobilize those who are going to execute the plan to buy into it to make sure that this is, yeah, indeed, this is what we should be doing. Let's get at it. Yeah. Well, speaking of, uh, of getting at it, let's get on uh, topic uh, three of our uh, grand tour uh, of the world here. And uh, that would be China. We seem to, uh, we didn't have a COVID standing topic today, but we, we are into China once again. And it seems like uh, China is going to be 
uh, among our top topics of the week uh, in these news reviews for some time to come. Uh, this week, we're, we're talking about the uh, propaganda war between the United States and China. And this stemmed uh, largely from the, the Wuhan, uh, uh, the incidents of the, uh, the pandemic originating in Wuhan. Um, the uh, Trump administration, the president and the secretary of state were calling it the Chinese virus and the Wuhan virus. So that that was part of the groundwork. And there was about that same time, there were charges uh, from the Chinese that, uh, and, and these were not directly attributable to Xi Jinping or the foreign ministry, but uh, uh, voices of influence were talking about the virus had originated in the United States in a US Army laboratory. Uh, the Trump administration took a great exception to that. But I, I think we can uh, see that from the beginning of this uh, pandemic uh, that the Chinese government uh, has uh, been very determined uh, to uh, uh, not just contain the virus, uh, but also to uh, tell the story in their own way about uh, how the pandemic got going and, and uh, how it uh, became a global issue. Uh, so they're, they're trying to seek to portray themselves as, uh, as being smart about how this was handled. And also at the same time, uh, being generous to other countries around the world. And you can see uh, that they provided PPE to, uh, uh, for example, Italy and Spain when they were in their, their yeah. darkest hour of dealing with the pandemic. And the United States was not engaged. We were looking inward and doing our own thing. You know, the, the, the whole Chinese virus thing, I mean, politically it serves uh, the, the president to have the China boga man out there. Uh, but the reality is the virus doesn't respect national borders. The virus is going to go where it's going to go and uh, where it can find a nice, warm, rosy place to, to, to live. Right. And that's what's happening. And one of the interesting things is that if you look at the statistics shift a little bit from China to COVID, uh, it seems to me that those countries that have populist sort of strongman leadership are the ones that are having, are having the hardest time coming to grips with the virus. Uh, those that are the most open, transparent, like New Zealand, uh, seem to have the best way of controlling that virus. So, you know, Brazil is having a tough time. The United States is having a tough time. Um, I think that the idea of an open, transparent kind of a regime is what you have to do. But we've got ourselves into a tit for tat with China. So they say something, we say something, we, we link it to trade, we link it to visas for journalists, we link it to uh, airplane landing rights, various kinds of things, none of which helps fight really the virus, but creates more enmity and difficulty in our relationships. Yeah, Dick, I think that you're uh, dropping back a, a paragraph there. Uh, you you uh, intentionally or unintentionally lumped us in with the non-transparent, uh, non-transparent autocratic uh, regimes, but we'll leave. We have a populist leader who is uh, doing his own thing. And uh, when you look at the statistics as to, you know, how many people are getting COVID, we're up at the top of uh, that, that list. Oh sure, we've got uh, we've got four percent four percent of the global population, and approximately twenty five percent of the uh, the COVID infections. 
Well, so there's there's a there's an <laughs> there's something uh, to be examined there. Um, but uh, looking at, at China, I think uh, that their their uh, goal in all of this is that uh, they want to be uh, uh, seen as a leader on the world stage, that uh, they can use the pandemic uh, to uh, capitalize on their reaction and their support uh, for countries around the world. They're, they plowed a bunch of money, uh, several billion dollars into the uh, World Health Organization at a time when the United States with, has been withdrawing from the uh, WHO. And we had um, a, uh, a webinar uh, last uh, week, two weeks ago with uh, Dr. James Hildreth of Meharry College here in Nashville. And I asked him about uh, the, uh, the World Health Organization. And he, he made the point that the WHO is uh, the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, uh, for many countries around the world that, that doesn't have such an institution uh, as we do. That's absolutely true. And the idea that, you know, you defund the fire department when you're in the middle of fighting fires doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So, yeah. um, who knows? But yeah. the Chinese, I think you're absolutely right, Pat. The Chinese are, are using this pandemic to their political favor in the sense that they very much want to emerge from this as being seen as a world leader as one of the preeminent powers in the world. And if you get in trouble, you need some help, China will be there for you. Yeah. And so they're, they're given PPE and they're sending in flights with the equipment on it and that kind of stuff. Uh, none of which I think we are doing. Yep. So, um, uh, black eye on us and, and, you know, we'll, we'll see how that all works out. I think the last piece of, uh, of this topic, uh, Dick, is the, uh, the press issue that China, uh, early on in the pandemic, they uh, tossed out the uh, reporters from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and uh, um, the Washington, Washington Post and, and a couple of others uh, basically would not renew their, their visas so they, they couldn't get back in uh, during the time when the pandemic was really taking off. Uh, the Trump administration has responded by tossing out some ch uh, Chinese journalists. Um, so it, it, I guess that raises the question. Uh, I know, Dick, uh, as, as a uh, distinguished diplomat, you're familiar with the concept of reciprocity and, and diplomacy and tit for tat, et cetera. Uh, but some wonder uh, for a country that champions freedom of the press, um, if, uh, if we could have achieved some kind of advantage by not throwing out the Chinese journalist and, and being just as, uh, you know, going to the same level as Beijing, uh, but use that as uh, a point that, uh, you know, we're, we're open and transparent and we, uh, we offer, uh, uh, journalists the opportunity to, uh, to look around America yeah. while China does not. I think it's a good point, Pat, but uh, we still have journalists in China. Uh, I think, you know, it's not a, it's not a hundred percent ban and you will right. you'll see reporting from time to time. Yeah. Some, uh, some of the broadcast uh, operations I've seen NBC, CNN yeah. and some others uh, reporting. And, right. you know, obviously there's news coming out, uh, but clearly uh, China has uh, uh, thrown uh, uh, yeah, I mean, on, you know, on reciprocity is a, is a cardinal rule of international diplomacy, but you don't have to exercise it so strictly that you're cutting your nose off despite your face kind of thing. 
So what is in our best interest? Would it be to let some Chinese journalists stay here so they could report what's actually going on back in the United States? I think it's in the interest of the United States to be as well understood and known as, as possible and right. not live and live in a, you know, hide away somewhere and let people think of, well, what are they going to do now kind of stuff. Yep, for sure. Okay, well, moving on, our next topic, and this is, uh, this is an area that doesn't get a lot of play, Dick, uh, in, uh, in the current news reporting, uh, is what's going on in, uh, in Libya. And um, I think uh, not too many people are aware that uh, there's an active civil war uh, in Libya and that uh, the sides have uh, roughly split the country in two uh, and it's gone back and forth a little bit. Just uh, to give people uh, kind of the play-by-play the -play here, uh, Libya, as, as everyone knows, is a, uh, a very large landmass in uh, North Africa, borders on the Mediterranean uh, to the north. Um, and it's uh, very important to uh, uh, Europeans and to the international community, uh, contributes to the global energy output uh, we'll talk a little bit about its uh, energy supplies, uh, but uh, it's a it has been in the past a major uh, oil supplier, uh, especially to Europe, and especially of a certain kind of crude oil, uh, which is uh, easy to, because of the topography in in Libya to get out of the ground. So it's a low cost extraction, which, um, as as far as the cost of a barrel of oil, that's a, a major factor. That's why the Middle East uh, exports so much oil. It's easy to extract as opposed to places like Siberia, where there's a lot of oil, it's just hard to get at. Also, the quality of uh, Libyan oil is important. But uh, we're, we're gonna uh, dive down a little bit into what's going on uh, in the battle for Libya. And uh, you people may recall that uh, uh, our good friend, uh, Muammar Gaddafi, uh, was in control of Libya for decades. The United States had uh, some trouble with him uh, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, he was responsible for uh, bombing a, a discotheque and uh, uh, was found to have agents who were behind the Pan Am bombing over Lockerbie, Scotland. Uh, the United States responded uh, with military force. So our relationship with uh, Gaddafi and Libya was uh, uh, adversarial. And then uh, we kind of uh, made up a little bit in the uh, in the 2000s. Uh, there were some agreements, and we actually uh, denuclearized Libya. They had a nuclear uh, program, and they had a lot of nuclear materials, fissile material, and production facilities. All that stuff was uh, bagged up and carted off to uh, Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Um, and uh, I think uh, Libya saw uh, the handwriting on the wall that, that it would not be in their best interest to become a nuclear weapons uh, state. Uh, but uh, in October of 2011, uh, Mr. Gaddafi ran afoul of an uprising. And uh, Dick, you, you may recall seeing the uh, footage of him getting yeah. dragged out of a drainage uh, tube and out in the desert, he had fled Tripoli. When yep. uh, when his severely uh, executed, yeah, yeah, right there in the the middle of the road. So that was the end of uh, Gaddafi, and and since then, uh, it's been a battle back and forth between uh, forces in the in the uh, west, uh, based in mostly in Tripoli, and uh, forces in the east. So the current uh, breakdown of uh, who's who there, 
Uh, in the West, there's the Government of National Accord in Tripoli, and that's the uh, government that is recognized by the United Nations. And the, uh, the head is uh, Prime Minister Fayez al-Saraj, uh, and they are backed uh, strongly by Turkey, as well as Qatar and uh, Italy. Uh, you would think they would also be backed by the UN since uh, the UN has, has thrown in with uh, that government. But a number of UN nations are backing the Libyan National Army, which is the Eastern section uh, under uh, General Khalifa Haftar. And uh, he had, had made uh, significant advances across the central part of Libya uh, and was uh, encircling uh, the uh, the GNA strongholds in the West, uh, but recently uh, the GNA has uh, had uh, some major successes in pushing back with the strong support of Turkey. Uh, Turkey is all in on the side of uh, Siraj in the West. So uh, we're seeing that um, uh, the, the forces of uh, Haftar are being pushed back and uh, that's uh, even though the Russians have uh, thrown their support behind uh, Haftar, uh, building a, uh, a large presence in, in the central part of the country. Uh, you can see uh, this, this photo uh, shows an air base, uh, Al Jafra airfield in Libya. And what, uh, what is highlighted there is a Russian fulcrum uh, fighter, one of their frontline uh, uh, warplanes that uh, has been deployed to Libya to fight on the side of Haftar. Uh, so despite the, uh, the Russian presence in Libya, Haftar is being pushed back. And now there's a lot of efforts on the part of the international community to try to negotiate uh, some sort of uh, resolution to, uh, to the situation. Uh, you can see in the, uh, the photo here, there was a uh, international conference on, uh, on Libya called the Berlin uh, Berlin Conference, and uh, the representatives of uh, the major powers, the um, uh, European Union and, and some others. Uh, you can see uh, Mr. Putin there, and uh, behind uh, him in the next row is uh, Secretary of State Pompeo. So all the major powers are interested in what's going on in Libya, even though it's not much in the news. Uh, you can also see the, uh, the laydown of, of where uh, crude oil is in Libya and how it gets out. Uh, a lot of it is in the uh, the east. Uh, so it's important to the economy of uh, Libya that the civil war stop, um, the sides reconcile. Uh, I don't think there's going to be one side uh, taking over uh, control of the other's area. I, I suspect, uh, and, and Dick, you, you uh, can probably provide some sense of, uh, of how these things work out if they're of uh, there's there's a, a a ceasefire and negotiations and and really one side is not achieving any dominance over the other. Well, I don't know, Pat. Do you, you think that the possibility of uh, Libya ceasing to exist as Libya is going to be uh, on the table? Well, I, I I think that's a definite possibility that it be divided in two. When you uh, when you look back at the history of Libya, I mean, Libya is a huge landmass, as you said early on. Right, but. The bulk of that landmass is desert, and it's down in the south, and there really is nothing and nobody there except maybe some interest in, in uh, 
minerals and resources from the ground and oil and things of that sort. Right. But Tripoli as, is in the eastern part of, I'm sorry, the western West. part of- right. uh, Benghazi uh, is the major city in the east. Yeah, so Tripoli traditionally has looked to the north, right? You have good, good relations with Europe. Benghazi has looked to the east and they have not really been, you know, this was put together back in the good old days when the European powers were dividing things up. So Libya is not an ethnically cogent kind of a country. Sure. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I think uh, my sense is that they could probably get along a lot better if they were two separate entities. Yeah, I, I, I suspect that in the long term we'll be uh, looking at an East Libya and a West Libya, much as Sudan is now Sudan and South Sudan. South. A couple of interesting uh, facts along with this story, uh, Dick. Uh, the Russians who are fighting for the LNA, uh, the Eastern Coalition, uh, they've dispatched uh, mercenaries. They are recruiting mercenaries from Syria. So the Russians go into Syria and they, they uh, roll up a bunch of guys and, and fly them over to Libya to fight uh, on their behalf for General Haftar. And there's yeah. a, uh, a contract organization called the Wagner Group. Um, Sounds pretty benign, doesn't it? it? It does. It probably, you know, it's one of those places you, you'd walk past in an office building in, in Northern yeah. Virginia. Uh, it certainly doesn't sound Syrian or Russian to me, but uh, that's the name of the contract organization that's rolling up the, all yeah. the Syrian fighters. Yeah. Uh, so they're fighting on the side of the LNA in the east. Uh, another interesting fact, uh, is that uh, Haftar, the general in the east, uh, he was a close ally of Gaddafi, and then the two of them had a falling out. But he lived in Virginia for nearly 20 years, and uh, uh, some say that uh, he was uh, under the uh, care and maintenance of the CIA before returning to Libya to help in uh, Gaddafi's uh, demise. So um, the United mm. States apparently has some strong connection with Haftar. But uh, the Trump administration is, is trying to uh, uh, bring this thing to, uh, to a close because, uh, you know, right now oil is, is uh, an easy commodity to ignore this or that country. But uh, clearly the world wants to, to bring all that uh, supply back, uh, back into uh, operation. Uh, yeah. well, the other... Right, sits on the other side of the Mediterranean. So the, um, yep. the literal states of uh, Europe are, are, are concerned. France and Italy and Spain. I mean, they they're going to have to deal with that on the other side of the water. So it's important that hopefully there's some stability and peace that yeah. uh, will be coming to Libya sometime down the road. Well, you know, you, uh, that that brings up one one last uh, important point: the refugee flow from Northern Africa. A lot of it yep. uh, that's going into, especially Italy, uh, is going through uh, through Libya from uh, the sub-Saharan states and even uh, from uh, some of the eastern regions. Uh, but right. Libya, Libya is an important jumping-off point for refugee flows uh, into Europe, and that's uh, that's been uh, a persistent problem uh, basically since the Arab Spring in 2011. Um, that uh, Europe has had to absorb uh, all of those refugees fleeing from uh, from Africa. Okay, uh, Dick, we're we're on a roll here. Last uh, last but not least, another uh, global intractable intractable um, 
situation, the uh, Israel-Palestine situation. And we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago that uh, Israel was on the verge of uh, annexing uh, portions of the West Bank, uh, but it's, uh, it's getting closer to happen. I've he heard uh, in the past week that uh, July 1st or thereafter might be a time where we see some forward movement on that. I think the reporting we had a couple of weeks ago was uh, when the, uh, uh, the government, the factions in the government consolidated and they had a solidarity government that that was kind of the signal that uh, things were gonna start to move forward. And uh, we may recall that the Trump administration uh, with the support of uh, Mr. Jared Kushner uh, put together a peace plan that included this uh, annexation plan. Uh, it's notable that no Palestinians participated in the conversation of what this peace plan was going to look like. So it begs the question, how do you have a peace plan when one side is uh, occupying the territory of the other side yeah. and the, uh, the other side is, is not participating at all? Well, let me, let me just jump in because we talked about annexation, Pat, and maybe you know, it, it is a, a word that has specific meaning. Uh, and it can be some, some up kind of images of seemingly bygone colonial area when states uh, used to fight over the spoils of war. But annexation continues into the modern era. For example, Indonesia annexed East Timor in 1975. Briefly, Iraq annexed Kuwait in 1990, and that started the first Iraq war. Russia. Yeah, they uh, they considered it for a long time one of their provinces. That's right. Before and they Russia invaded Crimea, and then 2014, basically said, "No, this is ours, not yours, Ukraine." So now you know Israel's joined the club in 1980. It annexed uh, the majority Palestinian East Jerusalem, which was not part of Israel, but became when the Israelis annexed it. And a year later, it annexed the Golan Heights, which it had captured from Syria in one of the wars. So in short, annexation is when a country declares that a piece of land outside its borders is part of the state. And often this is done after military occupation and whether people living there want it or not. And international law is fairly clear about annexation. Basically, it is illegal. So in our, our area, imagine, for example, that uh, the United States decided, you know, we, we need to do something about Tijuana, so let's just annex Baja, California. And we go down there and we say, this is now part of the United States, it's no longer part of Mexico. That's what annexation is all about. Yes, uh, and we're, we're about to see it happen. And, and you can see on the, the maps there that uh, depict the, uh, initially from left to right, uh, the initial partition uh, of Palestine by the United Nations in 1947. And then what uh, uh, became uh, recognized uh, after uh, several wars uh, with Israel uh, marked out there in the West Bank, Gaza Strip, um, and the, the Golan Heights, which were captured in the 67 war from Syria. Um, so uh, Israel has already annexed the Golan Heights with the support right. Of, uh, of the United States. And I, I think there was a sign, um, Trump, uh, oh, on the road to, to the Golan Heights, my memory is failing me, but there was a sign recognizing Trump as having supported the, uh, the annexation. Uh, wow. So that's, that's already been accomplished uh, during the Trump administration. And now it looks like uh, Israel 
Well, and moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem yeah. was an international city that was split between Palestinians and Israelis, and now Israel has annexed the entire city and basically said it is, that is the capital of Israel, and the United States has basically recognized that by moving our embassy to, Israel, to Jerusalem, which was a very controversial move at the time it was made under the Trump administration. Yeah, and the original partition you can see on the map there, that purple area was designated by the UN in the time of the partition as yeah. uh, uh, not the sovereign area of either Israel or Palestine, that it was a, uh, an open historic religious uh, entity, uh, but it was uh, taken over completely in the 67 war and held uh, East Jerusalem held uh, since then uh, by Israel. So you can see the areas on uh, the, uh, the map uh, of the proposed annexation, uh, Israeli settlements and the, uh, the Jordan Valley. Um, there are some areas that uh, are being uh, given up by Israel down along the uh, the the border um, south of of Gaza uh, that uh, would be turned over to the Palestinians, but uh, clearly the West Bank uh, would be carved up. Uh, it's already difficult for Palestinians to move from some areas to another due to uh, uh, cordon areas, uh, highways that uh, connect settlements, and so forth. So this is is uh, going to be seen as as a significant. Uh, impingement on, on the Palestinian position in the Middle right. East peace process. So again, about down at the end of the road, what, what is the end of the road here? What, what's, how, how does Israel live with Palestine? How do the Palestinians live with the Israelis? And this has been going on and on and on. And most folks say, you know, you, you, you have to learn some, figure out a way to live together. Um, there are many, many Palestinians that are living in Israel. And in fact, one of the little tidbits on the COVID nineteen thing was the number of Israeli, uh, number of Palestinian medical personnel that are working in Israel fighting the pandemic. Yeah. So it's, well, it's, I I don't know the answer to that, uh, Dick, and <laughs> I fear Mr. Kushner doesn't either. But uh, you, basically, you, his plan is 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 no is a non-starter with the Palestinians. So yeah. I, I think they, uh, I, I think they began that process uh, believing they would have a lot of support from the uh, the Gulf Arabs to put pressure on the Palestinians. Yeah. And there were uh, a couple of conferences in which they talked about uh, billions of dollars being uh, provided to the Palestinians to uh, uh, get their economy up and running and and uh, have some some progress in that area but uh, the Palestinians uh, weren't biting, and I think the Gulf Arabs uh, just lost interest. Well, it looks like we've hit all five topics there. Pat, what do you think? I, I think it's uh, time for the uh, answer to our question. And oh yeah, so let's review the question. huh? While the job is not done, there is no denying this is a milestone. Thank you, New Zealand, said this prime minister, and comments marking the elimination of COVID-19, one of the first nations to achieve this milestone. So who is the Prime Minister of New Zealand? Pat? Jacinda Ardern. That's right, Ms. She's Ardern. Been, she's been in the news a, a lot lately. Um, they, yeah. uh, they had an earthquake in, uh, in New Zealand and she was about to be interviewed by some foreign correspondent and she was sitting 
in her office and everything started shaking dramatically. And she, she maintained her cool, calm demeanor in, in the face of, uh, of the earthquake. And the, the correspondent said, uh, uh, Prime Minister, are you okay to continue? And, and uh, she said, sure, let's go. I, I don't have any uh, lights over me. Uh, and everything seems to be fine. So, so she was cool, calm, and collected in the middle of a, I, I guess, New Zealand. They get uh, shaken up quite a bit. Well, she's, she's one of many of these uh, women prime ministers that are really doing the job and making things happen in the proper way around the world. So maybe we'll yeah. see more of that kind of elected official. For sure. Well, she, she got in the news initially with the response to that tragic uh, mass shooting that they had <laughs> yeah. in New Zealand. And she called upon the... Uh, uh, the, the legislature there to enact uh, laws, uh, gun control laws, basically disarming, um, you know, some of the uh, the weapons that just didn't didn't belong in the hands of the public. Uh, so that was really the first glimpse internationally that we had of uh, Prime Minister Arden. And um, other than an appearance on Colbert, I, I don't think she's. Uh, uh, well, she had a, she has a little baby too. Does the and and the baby's been involved with with government. She takes the child to to, to the office oh, time. I think things. Like yeah, that. that's right. I I remember that. Okay, well, Dick, uh, that that about does it for our five topics today. I I think uh, that was a good rundown of what's going on in the news. Thanks for your expertise and perspective. For your leadership, Patrick. From Foggy Bottom, uh, we will. Um, uh, hang on a second. We, we have a question. a question in the queue. Uh, regarding the Germany-U.S. situation, the U.S. is one of the only NATO states that pays its 2% in defense spending, if I recall from WorldQuest. Um, let me see. Who is this from? Uh, Jillian. Um, thank you, Jillian. Jillian is uh, a Jung Fogg high school graduate, WorldQuest champion, and is now going to Wellesley. And rumor has it she's uh, volunteered to be on the staff of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Hey. So, so thank you for your question, uh, Jillian. She asked, uh, she'd be curious to know if Germany is the only NATO country that we have troops in and what would spark specifically this pullout and whether anyone believes it would have the desired effect. Hopefully, um, the answer is no, we have troops in other NATO countries, uh, starting, I guess, in the east with Turkey, a major NATO U.S. air base in Inchevik. In fact, and rumor has it, and the press has reported that that's one of the four deployed nuclear weapons depots that we have around the world. Um, <laughs> rumor has it. <laughs> huh? <laughs> the rumor mill. <laughs> Well, yeah, but, you know, you can dig up and sort of find out and get a fair idea of where the U.S. nuclear weapons might be. Italy sure. is another place where there are a number of uh, U.S. personnel in both naval bases and Air Force bases, right? Yep. Spain also, and Germany, and the U.K. We have quite a relationship that goes back quite a ways with the, with the uh, U.K. people. So, um and I think there may be a, a token presence. Well, now we've, we've put troops into Poland to try to give Poland some backbone relative to its common border with, the, with Russia. And the Baltic countries, we also have troops rotating in and out. So we've, we've forward deployed a whole lot of people. Yeah. 
uh, I'll mention that uh, I was stationed in Naples, Italy, and that's where I met my wife, who was also in the United States Navy. Uh, and that's how I wound up in Tennessee. She won the coin flip after uh, after I retired from the Navy. So uh, I, I well, can I can tip my hat to NATO. <laughs> Yeah, but it was a, a U.S. Uh, element there in, in Naples. Okay, well, uh, Jillian, thanks for that question. I hope that answered that, and uh, we look forward to uh, another edition of the News Review next week at, at our normal time, 2 p.m., and we hope that uh, you all will be with us, and um, we invite you to uh, our webinar tonight, uh, Global Nashville, with Carl Dean. He'll be talking with Amr El Husseini, a Nashville-based international business person who is a consultant, entrepreneur, venture capitalist. He's got his uh, finger on the pulse of uh, local and international economic issues, and he's going to talk about the future of uh, Nashville's economy. And tomorrow we have a special program at 1 p.m. Uh, we'll be talking with uh, two people from the Alliance for Securing Democracy, uh, Rachel Dean Wilson and David Salvo uh, from the ASD will be here uh, talking, taking the bipartisan look at the foreign interference in the 2020 election. It's just, uh, what, 150 days away or something like that, Dick? In November. Yep. So it's uh, right around the corner, and uh, we we know for certain, uh, based on the intelligence community and the U.S. Senate, that uh, the Russians interfered in the 2016 election, and there's no sign that uh, they've they've backed off. So uh, look forward to a, a great conversation uh, tomorrow. Mark Braden from our board of directors uh, will be moderating. That's one o'clock on Wednesday afternoon, don't miss that. And again, tonight, our uh, Global National with Carl Dean talking with Amr El Husseini. Uh, so for Ambassador Dick Bowers, uh, this is Pat Ryan uh, from the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Thanks for joining us and we will see you next week. Thanks, Pat. Bye-bye.